DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that faith's past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters, not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why it matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In this special edition of Why It Matters with Archbishop George Lucas, we discuss the horrific consequences of the clergy abuse crisis in the Roman Catholic Church and its particular implications for the Church and its bishops in the United States. Among the many questions addressed by Archbishop Lucas are those surrounding the recent allegations brought forward by the former papal nuncio of the United States, Carlo Maria Vigano, and his assertions that Pope Francis was aware of the disgraceful behavior of the former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Archbishop Lucas joins many of his brother bishops in the United States in a call for the Holy See to offer answers to those allegations. Archbishop Lucas feels that unequivocal transparency is needed at all times within the Church in order to regain its integrity and reestablish trust in the hearts of the faithful. He also discusses the reality of why this type of abuse, on so many different levels, is more serious when it occurs in the Church as opposed to other institutions. He also discusses the state of the seminaries in the United States and the pastoral care of seminarians. And he restates the vital role of the laity within the body of Christ and in the structures of the Church. We now begin our conversation with Archbishop Lucas. Archbishop Lucas, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you always. For those who have been following your podcasts, who will also hear your broadcasts as well, or the Spirit Catholic Radio Network, what are your thoughts about the particular crisis that is affecting the Roman Catholic Church in this summer of 2018? I have a lot of thoughts. Thanks for the opportunity to share them. We're being confronted again in the church with uh, the ugly truth that there have been too many instances of the sexual abuse of minors and other vulnerable people in the church over many years, and also the abuse of power on the part of those who have been given particular responsibility to, to pastor God's people. We're all affected very deeply, I think, by the uh, report from the grand jury in the state of Pennsylvania of a number of dioceses there. They looked at the abuse of, of minors and abuse of power over many decades. Those revelations are not new necessarily, but when you see them all together and see the sweep of the problem over many years, we realize that the church has had, at least we can say, an inadequate response. I mean, I think it's much worse than that. And we're reminded again of the hurt that is still being borne by those who have been uh, the victims of 
sexual abuse and, and the abuse of power in the church. The revelations of what seems to be the uh, terrible misconduct of Archbishop McCarrick, also over, over many years, that adds to our shame and our anger at this particular moment. We have also the assertions of Archbishop Vigano, a former apostolic nuncio in the United States, about the McCarrick situation and those who, who might have known about it, might have, have supported him in terms of him achieving a position of, of influence and responsibility in the church. At this moment, as we're recording, we're still waiting for, I think, an adequate response to, to his assertions. I don't know Archbishop Vigano personally. I knew him, met him as he served as the Apostolic Nuncio here in the United States. He had certainly a, a responsible position in the church and, and particularly in our relationship as bishops here and Catholic people here to the Holy See. I don't know of any reason why he would just be making a lot of things up. At the same time, as Cardinal DiNardo, the president of our bishops' conference, had stated that these assertions need to be looked at. We don't want innocent people to suffer from false accusations, and we don't want people who might be guilty of harming the church to get away with it or to perhaps commit further harm. There's a lot then that, that we don't know, and I think the people of God, certainly I myself am looking forward to to some answers, particularly with regard to Archbishop McCarrick. At the same time, we um, realize that there's some things that, as bishops, we are able to do, and I think we intend to do in, in the coming weeks. Again, Cardinal DiNardo has proposed that when the bishops meet, our normal meeting in November, that we propose some kind of structure within which bishops would, would be accountable for our actions and, and particularly be able to be called to account for any misconduct. The Holy Father is our immediate superior. And so he would have to ratify that and get behind it. We're determined to ask him to do that. But in any case, I think it's time for us to, to speak up and say that we want to be accountable and that we want to perhaps at least voluntarily put in place some structure that would enable us to assure our people that if there's a, a concern about the conduct of a bishop, that that can be received, that can be investigated, and that some kind of account can be given to the church. We do that already within our dioceses under the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People that we had bishops adopted in 2002, does provide everywhere for someone who has a concern about the conduct of a member of the clergy or really anybody working or volunteering in the church. There's a means for that person who has a concern to come forward and for that concern to be received respectfully and to be investigated. And we have a great review boards in every diocese. Certainly we have one here in the Archdiocese of Omaha, made up of professional people who work in the areas of child welfare and in, in criminal justice and medicine and in psychology, uh, lay people for the most part. There's, we have one priest on our board, a, a good, uh, competent pastor. By and large, you know, I rely on the, on the counsel and the judgment of these competent lay people when we receive an allegation or a concern about possible misconduct. Uh, we want to continue to assure our people that there's no member of the clergy that's had even one credible allegation of, of the abuse of a minor who is working in active ministry. In our archdiocese, I think every bishop wants to be able to say the same thing. We have the, the structures and the procedures in place so that, that that is the case. Certainly all the clergy, all of our church employees who deal with minors or other vulnerable people, and many, many of our volunteers, especially those who, who do spend time with young people, have to go through a safe environment training, a criminal background check, we're doing everything we can to screen out anybody who might be not appropriate for or trustworthy for work with minors. The training has had the benefit 
of uh, kind of heightening everyone's awareness in the community about the, the evil of the abuse of minors. And it gives everybody a freedom, I think, to look and to speak up if they see any conduct or any situation that is concerning to them. We always encourage that speaking up. We will receive anyone's concerns very readily and, and follow up on them. So it's not so much a matter of just making an, an outright accusation of misconduct. Maybe that needs to be made. But also if, if, we, if someone sees something that's worrisome or that is against our safe environment practices, that they can speak up and, and then it can be looked at. So we want to be confident that our children and young people are safe in our programs. Uh, we have that confidence now. But if there's any way that we can improve that, we want to improve it. I don't want in any way to be smug about that. But I do think we're in these recent years in the, the place where we need to be, so conscientious and, and dealing, uh, using the, the expertise of people in the community to help us stay on track with this. We do continue to, from time to time to hear from people who have been harmed in the past, and we're ready to reach out to them also. What we've learned is that the, the hurt that results from being abused endures, and I, I feel bad at this current moment because I know that, that as we talk about situations in other states, as we talk about policies and procedures, this can all be very personal in the lives of, of individuals and families who have been harmed in the past by, by abuse. And the hurt can be renewed and, and start up again. So it's, the, it's a reminder to me to say again on behalf of the church that I apologize for the hurt that, that has been inflicted and that still, still endures. We want in the life of the church to try to offer support and healing in any way that we can. There's something about this particular moment. It seems to be a, a perfect storm almost because of what you mentioned prior with the issue with Cardinal McCarrick. And then, of course, the Pennsylvania report that comes forward. But there is also so many other instances around the world with the sad circumstances in Ireland and in Australia and, and in so many different regions and the heightened awareness. I've heard it said by many people, and I do believe it's true, there's something extraordinarily important that things be brought out into the light. But isn't there a difference in some ways that there's, yes, there is the light of Christ and bring this forward. But then there's also the red hot spotlight of the world and it goes into every corner and wants to find everything. And sometimes things can get caught in that light that can do a lot of harm too. So there's that need for discerning what do we bring forward, what is said and what is helpful. I think it's helpful to know the truth. And there's an ugly truth that's been part of the life of, of the church. And as you say, we see it now in many places, in many cultures. So it's not simply an American problem or a problem in, in Western countries. It's, it's not a happy thing you know, to look at, at the sins that have existed in the church and in the past and, and still. But it's important that we do so that we can repent and so that we can be determined so that other people won't have to, to suffer the same effects of abuse going, going forward. We know that we can't eliminate sin from the world. I wish we could, but you know, that's, that's not possible. But we've seen in this country how we are able to structure the situations in which minors are educated and cared for in, in the church, where they are 
substantially much safer than, than they might have been in the past. So it is painful, but I think it's important that, that we realize it. I mean, it's painful to, to think that over so many decades, centuries, who, who knows, that children and other young people ha, uh, have been vulnerable. Um, they're vulnerable anyway, but, but have been, I should say, not uh, cared for in their vulnerable reality as, uh, as children and, and young people in the church. You know, Jesus promises to be with the church till the end of the time, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he gives us the, this community of believers, the, the church, so that we can encounter him. We, we not only are able to hear about him from a long time ago, but, but we meet the, the risen Jesus in the church these days, and we invite, it's part of the mission of the church, to invite people to come to the Lord, to meet him, to have their sins forgiven, uh, to know how much they're loved by our Heavenly Father, his beloved daughters and sons. So it, it should shock and, and sadden and anger us to think that when some people have come looking for the Lord, they've encountered someone who was self-indulgent and because of his own selfishness, uh, because of his willfulness, he has inflicted great harm on them. It's why the harm of, of abuse in the church is so serious and so long-lasting because it's it's in the moment when somebody would have expected to meet the risen Jesus that they met someone who, who was um, very much acting in contradiction to the, the presence of the loving and redeeming Savior. You've hit right on it. That is the horrific nature in this, where in all acts of abuse of this nature, taking advantage of the vulnerable, we have heard that it, it happens in all different types of systems. It happens in, a, in medical care workers, in hospitals, in, in educational institutions. We've seen it in our sports activities with that recent terrible story about the, the gymnasts and the doctor that took advantage of them for so long. And yet there's something that is just crippling to the soul. Uh, when we encounter it in our places of worship, in, in that encounter, as you said, for those who are supposed to speak for Christ. Mm-hmm. So it's true. There's sin everywhere in, in the world. The mission of the church is to proclaim the truth and to proclaim liberation from sin and from the effects of sin. You're right. When we find the abuse of vulnerable people or when we find that those who have been in positions of responsibility where they could have done something about it when they turned away— and ignored it. When we see that in, in the church, it seems a much more serious wrong. And I think we have to to look at it that way, to not say, well, that it happens everywhere, so we're no worse than, than anybody else. That's an awful thing to have to say about yourself in, a, in such an important matter. We're, we're given the, the mission by the Lord himself. It's really a sharing in his mission to proclaim liberty to captives, you know, to proclaim the dignity of each human person and to invite women and men to live in that dignity, which is, is God-given. So when somebody in the church and acting in the name of the church goes against that and, and in a sense wounds that person, that human dignity, it is serious and it's much, much more serious perhaps. In any case, we need to take responsibility for ourselves. And I think all of us in the church would like to say we want to be leaders in offering a, an atmosphere, offering programs, institutions um, uh, that are respectful and where everybody feels respected and safe, but particularly those who, who need to be protected because of their 
age or other vulnerability that that they can count on on us together in, in the church, making sure that that they're safe and respected. And there is a, a, such an anger out there that has many different expressions to it. And anger, what I've come to understand, is at its bare bones, you've lost something and you want it back. And what I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard it too, there are those out there who will say, I have lost my faith in the church and they want it back. How do you counsel, how do you pastor someone who's in that particular experience? That's a great question. The uh, faith in the church is, is really participation in our faith in God who invites us in the church to, to meet Jesus and to have life in him with our sins forgiven. I think what I hear, it, many people saying they've lost confidence in the church and they've lost confidence in the church's pastors, bishops particularly, at this moment. The Lord gave particular responsibility to, to the apostles and, and their successors to, to guide the church and to make sure that she is faithful to, to the mission, the mission of Jesus himself, of freeing people from sin rather than imposing sin and the, the effects of sin on, on people, which is you know, just a contradiction to what the Lord is asking. I think we need to take this seriously, that we hear from, from many people that their confidence has, has been shaken. And it then needs to be restored. That doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't happen just by saying, trust me. We have to be able to demonstrate, as I think we've been able to do now with the Charter uh, over a number of years, that in our programs these days, uh, if we uh, stick to what we say we're committed to, that we can create safe environments and deal with any concerns about them responsibly and promptly. What I'm hearing, though, particularly people are looking at bishops and saying, you know, you're telling us we should trust you, both in terms of what we believe and practice in our faith, but also in, in terms of the, the appropriate structures that are available in the church. And there have been some serious breaches of that trust, and we're waiting for some assurance by our actions, the bishops, that we are trustworthy. It's important to hear that. And for any minister in the church who has, thank God, not been involved in any misconduct, that lack of trust washes over all of us somehow. We have to tend to that and I think listen to our people, invite them to talk to us about what what would restore the trust. What is it that, that they're hoping to hear and see from us and, and from our actions that would make a difference? It's, it's part of what I think as bishops in this country we're attempting to do, to call for structures that we can all be part of, subscribe to, you might say, that will show that we want, we want to be accountable and that whether it's in our own conduct or whether the administration or the governance of our dioceses that we're worthy of the trust placed in us by the Lord and, and by the people. This is complicated right now, I should say, by the fact that we're looking for some answers about some situations, and we're not, again, up until this moment, not really getting them. I have the questions myself, and I think it's fair when others ask them, how did somebody like Archbishop McCarrick remain in a position of responsibility and influence for so long? How was he given several times the responsibility of being pastor of a diocese, several different dioceses, when it seems at least that there was some knowledge, at least available, but I presume people had it, of his misconduct, personal misconduct, and then really a misuse of his office, of, of his role with uh, priests and, and seminarians. There's an answer to that. 
I think we'd like to, to have the answer and have somebody take responsibility for that happening. When we see such a prominent bishop who is not worthy of trust, that affects the, the trust of all of us and our ability to govern in our own diocese in a position of trust. I think that's an element of this that for many people in the, in the church is who knew and when did they know. And with Archbishop Vigno's assertions in his document that he brought forward, that he feels it goes all the way to the Pope. And the jarring of our desire to want to have answers and not, as you said, not to have those, that lack of confidence, at the very least, is gravely unsettling. It's unsettling, and I think it, as on a certain level it's unjust. There's been an injustice as far as we, we can see, so things need to be set right. That's what justice means, the right ordering of things in God's, in God's design. So part of that restoring of justice is to have the truth in appropriate ways. We don't want to put the spotlight on people who might have been victimized, and we don't want to hurt them any more than they have already been, been hurt. But the church herself is hurting, and, and so to have the appropriate information about, as you say, about who knew what was going on when, when they knew it, those situations can be somewhat complicated. Uh, I know from my own experience that you don't always know as much as sometimes as people think you do. But when we're involved in something as important as choosing uh, bishops to serve the church and making sure that they are appropriate in terms of their own experience and character, we need to look for information and we need to look for, for the truth and not say, well, nobody's told me anything, so I'm, I can just be satisfied, uh, satisfied with that. I had my own experience in the previous diocese where I served of having to deal with the situation of, a, of the, my predecessor who was involved in some pretty serious misconduct before his retirement, but also after, and he, he remained in the diocese. And it, it was very difficult for me, even as a bishop, to find somebody to look at that information and to, and to act on it. And even when the Holy See acted to discipline that bishop, they kept it all a secret. He didn't wish to obey, and the fact that his superiors were trying to discipline him, that was kept a secret. So it really wasn't, wasn't helpful in the community. It was quite the opposite, actually. It was very harmful and, and detrimental to the life of the church and against the confidence that people would place in me as the diocesan bishop because I could see this other bishop acting out and didn't seem like anybody was doing anything about it. So it makes me very sad to think that that happened a number of years ago and that we're really not in a better position now in the church to deal with bishops who are causing trouble. So that's, that's what we need to address, and I think it's not impossible to do it. But one bishop in our structure in the church, one bishop really isn't in the position to, to discipline another bishop. We can denounce each other, I suppose. That's, that gets ugly, and it doesn't necessarily lead to a, a just solution of things. Kind of what's happening now. That's kind of where we are now, and I think we see that. And again, that also is unsettling for a lot of people, that bishops seem to be taking sides and, and being critical of each other. It's not necessarily a bad thing if it helps us get to the truth, but that can't be our normal way of, of operating. When there's a, a serious matter that concerns the life, the conduct, the governance of a bishop, there needs to be a, a serious and a transparent way for that to be addressed. And a, on some level, other bishops and the people of God need to be able to see how it's being addressed and have a sense that justice is being restored so that confidence can be restored and confidence can be maintained in, within the, the life of the church. Yeah, it's a 
it's a difficult thing because this is something that's being played out in a forum that has never really been experienced literally in the history of the church with the social media aspect of this. Quite literally, everyone's opinion, whether it's one that's an informed opinion or it's someone who feels they just they have a piece of information that everybody else should know, contributes to a very heated, some would say a dialogue, others would say a, a rhetoric. Yeah, there's some dialogue going on, there's some screaming going on. But I, let's step back a minute and say some of this is a result of the fact that the, either the ability or the willingness of the church and of her pastors to resolve these things internally, but in a way that shows clearly that they are being dealt with, that that, that hasn't been happening sufficiently. So people are loudly asking uh, for something else. So many people who are part of the dialogue and even part of the screaming love the church very much. They love their faith. They want to be able to pass along the faith to their children and to their grandchildren, and they want young people as, as they're coming up to see that being part of the church and putting faith in what the church teaches and the teaching of, of Christ, that, that that's credible, that that's something that a person of integrity would want to do and want to be part of. So when people love the church but don't see that as a possibility going forward, then they scream. It's not fun to listen to the loud rhetoric or screaming, but I think if we need to listen to what's, what's the message inside the message. And then to respond to that. Because, that, I mean, that's part of, it. not only do we have the opportunity to say what we're feeling, but then to feel like we've been heard and then there's a response that comes back. That's called relationship, isn't it? That's, that's communication, right? Exactly. That's what's really being threatened out. Individual people and groups of people are relationship to one another in the church. It has to be based on, in human terms, a certain level of respect and confidence. We know we can put our trust in the Lord he uses human instruments in, in the church to carry out his mission. All of us who are baptized, we're all sinners. We, we know that, but we can't. We don't want to enshrine sinful practices or be satisfied with them. So we have to, as the Lord himself did, call what's evil, evil, and to do what we can to not see that it, it has a hold on us uh, in our normal way of living and working together in the church. This is an area, too, that has also come forward that is really unsettling. The fact that a question would even have to be asked of you, are seminarians safe in where they're at from predators? I can't believe I would even have to ask that question, but yet... Yeah, well, we see in some places in the past that that hasn't been the case. So I take a question like that very personally because I was a seminarian for many years. I was the rector of a seminary and now invite young men uh, who sense that they're being called by the Lord to consider vocation to the priesthood and to, to then participate in the formation for the priesthood that occurs in, in seminaries. So I, I'm very interested in that question. I'm very interested in, in our providing the best formation possible for those who will be serving us as, as priests in our parishes, in the church, in the days to come. Just uh, before this, our seminarians from the archdiocese returned to the seminary at the end of the summer, we began the practice a few years ago of, of having a little retreat, pilgrimage, together, so a few days t- together, so that they can come to know one another better, that they can have time to pray together. I can be with them for, for prayer, and we enjoy meals together, enjoy some some fun together. The um, news about Archbishop McCarrick had already broken by the time we were together, and the um, report from the Pennsylvania grand jury was, was imminent, so it hadn't been published, but we had a sense that that was going to be a very powerful, disturbing uh, 
disturbing report. I had the opportunity to, to reflect with our seminarians about all of this. In, in particular, though, we looked at this question of the importance of knowing that they're respected and that their formators, the seminary faculty, myself, others who are involved in their lives as, as they're preparing for the priesthood, that we're on the level and that we want for them what the Lord wants and not anything else. I um, told them it's my determination that that's what they'll have, and so we choose our seminaries very carefully, and I know the priests and others who are involved in their formation. I also told them, though, that if they should experience something that is uncomfortable or if they feel in any way they're being initiated into something that's, that's immoral, uh, that, that's improper in any way, that they just need to raise their voices. I told them they should raise hell. And uh, somebody said I should, should tell them they should raise holy hell, but I don't care what kind of hell they raise. Uh, but I, I, nobody should put up with it. And somebody will listen. Today, someone, someone will listen, and they should speak up. I'm not anticipating that, but I, we always have to leave open the invitation. If someone, uh, for any reason, feels that, that they're being asked to consider something, to, to be part of something that isn't holy, that doesn't lead to, to a holy life, no matter what the vocation, they need to speak with somebody that they trust about that because it, it shouldn't be anyone's experience. The same thing really applies to everyone in the church, everyone in the community, certainly, but as we speak particularly to the members of the church, every baptized person should feel that he or she has standing in the church to be treated with dignity and respect. And if anyone feels that in the context of church programs or activities or in relationship with, with someone who's in a, a position of authority or responsibility in the church, that, that, they are, uh, that there's a lack of, of respect or, or particularly if they're, uh, uh, they sense they're being invited into a relationship or a practice that's not in line with the gospel, that's not consistent with the church's moral teaching, that person needs to think they have a place to go with that concern and that someone will listen and that that concern can be investigated and, and we can make sure that things are on the level or, or that if somebody is not acting properly that that person is taken out of that role where they would have an influence over others and, and can be a call to account properly. These are extraordinary times. That line in our creed, I know someone said to me the other day, it's difficult when we say one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What do those words mean to us? What do we believe and then what do we do? Uh, how do we live as a result of, of what we believe? Uh, we say we believe that the church is one holy Catholic and apostolic. Th- those aren't just pious words. And they call forth faith, but also action on the part of, of all of us. People in positions of authority, pastoral authority in the church, have particular responsibility to guide that. It's a responsibility, though, that falls on each, each baptized person. Every moment is a moment of grace in, in the Lord's plan. So this moment, which is a very difficult and painful one in the life of the church, is a moment of grace. What does that mean? Well, it means the Lord is offering us something, a particular gift or grace at this moment, but he's also asking something of us so that we don't just walk away or that we don't look away and, and, or say this is all someone else's responsibility. In particular, we hear again, and Pope Francis has renewed this call not long ago, and it certainly is the call of the fathers of the Second Vatican Council. We're all called to be saints. We're called to, to be holy. That means we make a conscious decision to turn away from evil, embrace what's good and, and life-giving. N- none of us can do that perfectly, and so we slip back sometimes, either commit sins ourselves or we just 
how to put up with it in the situation in, in which we're living. This is a, a reminder these days that, that we're called to a, a new and holy way of life in the church. That's why we can't be satisfied to say, well, these problems are everywhere. They may very well be, be everywhere, but our invitation is to be holy and, and thereby to bring that light and, and life of Jesus to, to others so that where sin does exist in other places, others beyond the, even the life of the, of the church would have the opportunity to, to be invited into something that is good and holy and life-giving, a, a deeper, fuller understanding of what it means to be a human person. You mentioned the term evil, and I couldn't help but think as you were saying that instruction in the scriptures that some evil can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. That is something that we as the faithful are called to do, not only for what's going on in our own lives, but within the very body of Christ itself, isn't it? Yeah, there was Jesus that offered that instruction to his first disciples. So that's, again, not just pious talk. Prayer and fasting are ancient practices in the church. They've been offered to us as opportunities to grow for growth and holiness in every, in every generation. Jesus offers them particularly in the face of evil. As, as we face the, this real evil that exists everywhere in our world, where children and young people are, are abused and, and disrespected, but where we see it has existed in, in our church particularly, we uh, turn to prayer and fasting in, in solidarity with Jesus himself. You know, he, he himself was sinless. Um, he didn't need to fast to make up for his own shortcomings uh, or to grow in holiness, but he mortified himself. He fasted in the desert simply by becoming a member of the human family was a kind of mortification, you might say. He gave himself on the altar of the cross, and he did that for the sins of the people to make of us a pleasing offering. Uh, to our Heavenly Father. And he invites us to take up the cross. Again, that's an invitation that we can hear, uh, take very casually at times. But at a moment like this, when we feel we're really being challenged in the church, the invitation of Jesus to, to take up the cross is something that we need to, to listen to again and to take, take seriously. So we're all being burdened in the church by the effects of the sin of sexual abuse and of abuse of power. There are some among us who've been hurt very deeply personally by that kind of an attack on their human dignity. The rest of us feel the burden, the effect of this sin. That's how sin works, sadly. So in union with Jesus, it's a great moment for us to think about particular practices of, of fasting and prayer as we move through this difficult time. The Lord has not abandoned us. He's right here with us. He particularly wants to be with us where we're struggling or hurting or confused. And he invites us to unite our suffering, our confusion, and then willing acts of mortification and prayer with his own prayer and sacrifice. We believe that this has power. It has the power to overcome evil and to open up a life-giving path to the future for, for those who, who have been hurt, but for all of us who desire the church to be true to her mission and to, to flourish. As shepherd of this archdiocese and along with your brother bishops throughout, at least in the United States, and that desire to take care of those sheep, there, as we've spoken about before, there are so many out there who are confused, they're, they're struggling, they're hurting, they want to be led. How do you suppose and hope that that response will come from uh, not only yourself, but also from those brother bishops. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think, again, we have to act with integrity. We have to show that we're worthy of the confidence that people are asked to place in us and have to give examples of how, of how that's true. That takes a while when confidence has been, been destroyed. I would point out, though, that without uh, taking any responsibility away from myself or from, from the bishops to take our role in this, that the church is more than the bishops and the church is more than, than the clergy. Every baptized person is uh, invited to be alert for the opportunities to support brothers and sisters who are struggling, whether that's struggling with faith or struggling in a, in a more material way. And, and by our friendship, uh, by our prayer, by our good example, uh, to, to lead others closer to Jesus. So if, if uh, at a particular moment the institution of the church, to put it that way, uh, seems to be some kind of an obstacle or, or a difficulty, there's still much that can be done within the church and, and in the world by those who have been called by Jesus to be his disciples and his friends. That's all of us who are baptized. I'm not at all trying to deflect responsibility to other people, but I, but I invite the Lord's faithful people to see the opportunities that are there before all of us um, every day. It's a bit of a struggle, I know, for those who are involved in the life of the church, maybe those who have some work or ministry in the church, to have to face questions or criticism or heckling, perhaps, from others because of their association with the church. They didn't bring that on themselves. But to allow the warmth of, of Jesus to overcome that in conversation and in, in relationship with others, it may not happen instantaneously. But uh, there's a, a beautiful opportunity there. It's been really good for me these days to be among God's people, uh, to, to see the strength of, of people's faith. Again, not at all to, to minimize our challenges and, and the hurt that has happened. I'll just give an example. I, I was um, about a week ago uh, invited to uh, celebrate Mass for a, a group of Knights of Columbus from one of our parishes who had been involved in a project at a crisis pregnancy center to refurbish a room in, in their building into a chapel so that Mass could be celebrated there and the Blessed Sacrament could uh, be present for the benefit of the workers and the volunteers and also the, the clients who come there. So I was surrounded that day totally by lay disciples of, of Jesus, those who, who for many years have run and staffed and funded the Crisis Pregnancy Center and the Knights of Columbus who were looking for a project and were able with their resources and their labor to create this, this beautiful chapel. That, I, I cheered them on, you know, but that was all done, you know, not by a bishop or, or a priest. It was, it's done by baptized women and men who took their, do take their baptismal vocation seriously. That's happening everywhere, thanks be to God. I don't want to take that for granted, and I don't want actions by bishops or priests or, or others in positions of leadership in the church to shake the faith of, of so many good people. As I said earlier, the Lord's not abandoning the church is active in the lives of the baptized. It's beautiful to see that. That's a strength of the church. I think everywhere I certainly see it in this archdiocese, a strength on the ground, we might say. So those of us who are in positions of responsibility need to try more and more to be worthy of the faith that we see in the community, to serve in person in the name of Jesus and humbly, truthfully, as well as we can, to ask forgiveness when, when we miss the mark. Trust that, that the Lord will give us what we need in this challenging time. Ever since I've known you, and we've been blessed to have you as the Archbishop of this Archdiocese, from day one, from the very first moment, what I've heard you always communicate is the desire for people to have a deepening faith in Christ Jesus and a hope in him. And I think that's what sustains us, is that faith and hope in him. 
mean, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Jesus himself ever said to have faith in a person or hope in a person, but he did say to love other persons, that you have to love your brothers and sisters. And do you think that might be part of the renewal that we're being called? Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that it is. We have to meet Jesus in his integrity in the church, and as members of the church have to share him, show him to others. So our, our witness has to be credible. None of us can do it perfectly, but we, we need, in the big things, uh, to be credible witnesses to our own faith in Jesus and our own determination to, you know, to follow him and, and to serve him faithfully. So I, I'm convinced, that he, again, that he is with us and that he's giving us what we need. But those who have come to know him must abide in him, and then we also need to, to share him with others. We have a, a pastoral vision in our archdiocese, and I don't want to sound like I just have one note, but it's, uh, I think, is serving us well and, and will continue to serve us well because Jesus is right at the heart of it, the encounter with him and the growth in discipleship in relationship to Jesus. So that's been the invitation to Christians from the very beginning. That's the invitation now. We need to make sure that in our institutions and in our leadership, we're not giving lie to that, You know that, that we're not contradicting what Jesus himself offers, but that we're serving that, that we're sharing that. That's where the power is. That, that's where salvation is in, in Jesus, not in any other person in the church. I, I couldn't help the other day. It was the feast of St. Gregory the Great. And in the Office of Readings, it has that incredible snapshot into his heart. I mean, that, that experience of his desire to be a disciple of Christ and the burden, in some ways, the loving burden of trying to deal with all the different aspects of what it is to serve as that leader. And I couldn't help but think of you in some ways. How does this all affect you, and how do you keep your vision on Christ? I begin and end the day with him in the, in the chapel and hear very clearly then the invitation to abide in him and to allow him to be part of everything that I do. I sometimes don't hear that invitation so clearly in the middle of the day. So all of us in the clergy and others too, you know, we pray the liturgy of the hour so that we can be reminded at different times of the day that the Lord is with us and renew our desire to uh, to, to, to be with him. But as I said, I am surrounded by really so many good dedicated people, both those who work in the church certainly, but also in the community. I think for any of us, it's good that we're not just left with our own thoughts, but that we're actively part of the life of the church day by day with its joys and sorrows. We, we do see the Lord at work, though, and people calling on him and not being disappointed when they look to Jesus for, for strength and for consolation. I think it's a good reminder for us to, to be praying for, in a special way for the Pope these days. Uh, you were talking about Gregory the Great. He was a Pope, and so we... We think that you know it's a challenging time in the church and in the world, and Pope Francis has been given this responsibility by the Lord to pastor the, the whole church. That's a challenging job on a good day. These are not necessarily all good days. So we really do need to pray for him because we need him. You know, we, we need his leadership, his pastoring, authentic shepherding as we navigate these difficulties and see our way to a holier church, to a, a church where more and more the integrity and the the value of each person, but especially the vulnerable, is respected and and protected. Well, I think you can rest assured of the prayers of the faithful of this area, and I don't doubt for anybody else who is listening and Catholics around the world, as you and your brother bishops try to navigate through all of this and to to come to the, the solutions I know you 
want to find for your people. Well, and I appreciate the, the wise counsel of the lay faithful. We have lots of people who want to help us do the right thing and get, and get to the right place. And in fact, as are already doing it. I mentioned, you know, as we implement the charter in our diocese, it relies almost entirely on the work and the expertise of lay people in, in the church. So that's a big key going forward. Uh, so certainly invite everyone's prayers for the Holy Father and for bishops, for our priests. But let's pray for one another. Pray that the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are certainly present and active in many members of the church in, in various ways can all be brought together in a powerful unity so that Jesus himself is visible and so that we have the courage and the wisdom to know how to go forward together with Jesus as our head, our true pastor. Any final thoughts? Maybe in particular for that soul out there that's still struggling, seems to want answers to questions they're not even sure what they are. They're just they're kind of lost out there a little bit. I would say talk to the Lord. I don't say that in any, as any kind of a false, pious solution uh, to things. But but um, whoever uh, might be struggling or, or feeling somewhat isolated in this uh, particular moment, the Lord wants to be with you. His mission is communion. It's drawing us to gather in him, to, to have life in him. The devil wants us isolated. The devil wants us plagued by doubt and, and fear and confusion, anger. Uh, some of those things naturally come up. There's no denying them in, in difficult circumstances. But the Lord doesn't want us to remain there. That's not the final place for us. So personal prayer, calling on the Lord, maybe getting close to somebody you respect who's prayerful, who can give you some encouragement just by friendship or by accompaniment. That's also a good idea. There's not a quick solution to all these things I wish there would be. Whatever the way forward is, we know it's it's in Jesus and, and that he's going to provide us with what we need. So let's ask him. And we can all do that. We have different responsibilities, different places in the church, and some may be angry or feel alienated, uh, but the Lord loves you. He, he gave his life for you, and he will give you what you need at this moment if you feel I ask him. Yeah, don't leave. Don't leave the church. No, don't leave. Again, I understand the, the, the challenge of it right now, so I, I don't take that lightly. We're, people are, we're all, at any moment, we're all at different places on our life's journey and on, on the journey of faith, and some of us are in more fragile circumstances at, at different times. What's been revealed about uh, life in the church, some of the ugliness, some of the sinfulness is, is very jarring, and it's very hard for many people. So I, I accept that. So it's not just that we want you to be in the church, but we want you to have healing and peace in, in the Lord, and the Lord himself will reveal a path to that for you. There's one way to do that at, at this moment for everybody. So just uh, let's pray for one another, and pray especially for those who may might be struggling, that they won't be lost, that they'll come to strength and healing and peace in the Lord. Archbishop Lucas, thank you so very much. Thank you, Chris. God bless you. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this episode, Along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, 
consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.